0: There's three reasons we have guest speakers at High Point Point. One is because it is unhealthy for the spiritual genetics of the church To be constantly hearing from the same person That's not healthy It's not healthy for us to learn to be listeners And it's not healthy for us to be attendant on a single shepherd Because shepherds implode and fall And it happens the more the more we depend on one of them Second, people who speak like me need time off I spent this Saturday hanging out with the elders and talking for hours with some of the staff and the elders about the future of High Point. Where are we going? What are we doing? What do we care about? How do we make more offices in this building? And so on. And that time is very hard to come across when I'm also preparing a sermon. Sermons just take over weeks. It's just the way it goes. The third reason to have a guest speaker is um, to engage competence. And when we come to things like the persecuted church, oftentimes when we're doing, we're, we need dispatches from the front of global missions. It's important that we bring somebody in who not only knows what they're talking about in terms of content, but somebody who actually has lived it and done it and been a practitioner themselves. And um, Charlie Davis, um, who is our speaker this morning, the doctor, Charlie Davis, um, has been a missionary for more than 20 years. He has been in Pakistan and Venezuela. He became the director of TEAM, which is an international mission sending agency which oversees the sending of um, more than 700 missionaries, several of which we have supported at High Point Church. Um, The Sherbecks um, were with TEAM, and we have other missionaries with TEAM. And oftentimes when we need information about missions and how we should do things as a local church, that's the organization that we turn to. Charlie's also written a book coming out now or coming out in 2015 called "Making Disciples Across Cultures" to help missionaries prepare for cross-cultural disciple-making work, and um, we really try um, in moments where we're going to talk about missions um, to get people who have done it because there's something about international missions where I just don't care to listen to a non-practitioner. I will listen to a scholar here and there. I like scholars. That's all I've ever been, but. Um, But when it comes to things like this I want to hear somebody Who actually cuts wood And hammers nails I want to hear from somebody Who's done it And helped people do it And Charlie's that person I think we're enormously privileged To have him here And so I hope you'll listen to him Very attentively And treat him with honor If you get to speak with him Charlie why don't you come As we pray for you Father, um, we pray now that you'll use this moment to speak what you have to say mediated through the personality and experience of Charlie. We pray that it would be helpful, meaty, clear, character forming in us, enlightening where we are ignorant or bigoted. Help us to see things as they are. Help us to see their relationship to the gospel and the scriptures, and help us to see you as you are and respond to how you would lead. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name for his sake and for the good of all people.
1: Pray Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now I just have to live up to the introduction. (laughs) You know, whenever I I arrive at a a church to speak, and it's a great privilege and honor for me to be able to do this with you this morning, so thank you. Um, It's really encouraging to find out that there have been other things happening there As I've been studying and thinking and praying about what the Lord wants me to speak on, I find out that there are other things going on in the church that absolutely coincide with what I think the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk about. Um, The focus on the persecuted church is prayer, so it may not be that big of a stretch, but to find out that there's a class right after this that if you wanna go and learn more how to pray, you can go to that class, and on Wednesday night, I think it's Tuesday or Wednesday, Wednesday, There's another focus on prayer, so if you wanna take what we talk about this morning and turn it into action, there's that opportunity for you. I go, I just sort of relax and say, well, okay, I guess I'm on the right track. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for looking after these things because they're way beyond us. Uh, This was not the result of great strategic planning on the part of somebody. This is the Holy Spirit at work, so that's always encouraging. Um, I grew up in Pakistan. And I grew up in northwest Pakistan where this, this picture of Asya Bibi uh, is, is very relevant. Uh, Asiya Bibi is the mother of five. She married a husband who had three, probably a widower, I don't know that part. And then she had two more children, so she's the mother of five. And, She lives 30 miles or lived 30 miles outside of Lahore where my parents lived for six years when I was in junior high and the first two years of high school. It's in the Punjab region of Pakistan. Now just to set the stage here a little bit for you so you understand uh, Asya Bibi is a Christian and you may not realize that there's a thriving Christian population in Pakistan. A hundred years ago in the early 1900s under the ministry of two Presbyterian missionaries. One was called Henry Martin. The other was known as Praying Hyde. I'm sure if you wanted to go on the internet and look these two guys up and find out more about them, you can. Uh, Notice the prayer, Praying Hyde. He prayed with such fervor that that was his first name. That's the name people gave him. And under their ministry in the country of India, because Pakistan didn't exist yet, there was a massive movement to Christ from the lowest class of Hindus often called the untouchables, but they have other ethnic characteristics. They had nothing to lose, by the way. The Hindus all hated them because they were the lowest caste. The Muslims hated them because they were Hindu. And they had nothing to lose. And they turned to Christ by the thousands in this ministry of these Presbyterian missionaries. And that... That is true in India. Today, now, there's the third, fourth, fifth generation of these Christians who have, it's called redemption and lift in the, in the literature. They were redeemed, even though they were the sweeper class. They were the lowest caste of Hinduism. They were redeemed. They turned to Christ. They now felt the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Their children began to go to schools. They now are a thriving Christian community with people who are all over the world following all sorts of occupations and making contribution to the body of Christ. There are still many of them who are poor. Not all of them have become doctors and lawyers, but many of them have. Asya Bibi is a a farm laborer uh, to support her family. And in June of 2010, four years ago, she was out in the field with other women from her small village 30 miles outside of Lahore. She was picking berries apparently, to be able to sell in the bazaar. And her family is the only family in that village that is a Christian family. She was picking these berries along with her fellow uh, laborers, the other women from the from the town. And they asked her, because she's, she's still the Christian, therefore she is the lowest class in India. In, in, sorry, I forgot to fill in just a little detail when Pakistan was created in nineteen forty seven by the British before they left India, they drew a line and created what is now today Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India, three countries out of one and that's why in Pakistan, which is a population of uh you know two hundred million. Muslims there is this thriving Christian community as there is in India. They stayed where they were when that line was drawn and Pakistan was created for Muslims and India for the Hindus. So that's why you have this Christian community in Pakistan. Uh, So Asia was out in the fields with the other women picking berries and they asked her to go and get water from the well so they could get a drink. It's awfully hot in in the Punjab in the in the summer it regularly ranges around 110 to 115 degrees so uh, an important request so she goes over to the well and she draws water there's a little tin cup sitting beside the well and she she's thirsty herself so she picks up the tin cup she scoops up some water and drinks the other women who are muslims said you're not allowed to drink out of the same cup we drink out of you're a Christian, we're Muslims, you're not allowed to do that. And they started a row. Now, there was a family feud kind of going on in the background because some of these women wanted their property. Or the other families. I don't know the details there. But there was a little bit of rancor and uh, dislike between these women and her family. They started a row. And Asya Bibi... I want to get this exactly right. Um, in the ensuing argument, she responded, "I believe in my religion and in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of mankind. What did your prophet Muhammad ever do to save mankind? And with those words it it absolutely inflamed her audience. They, they took her to the local magistrate. The local magistrate heard about this. He said, this falls under the law of, uh, against blasphemy. They threw her into prison. And the, the lower court ruled that she was to be hanged for blasphemy. And it was appealed to the next court. The next court affirmed the ruling that she was to be hanged. And that occurred just weeks ago. She's still in prison in Lahore and is now appealing to the Supreme Court of Pakistan. She had 30 days to appeal. The news came out this week that she was, she was indeed going to appeal to the Supreme Court. In the meantime, Christian Minorities Minister Shabaz Bhatti and Pakistani government politician Salman Tasir were killed for advocating on her behalf. For one judge, for one person, a minister, to actually say, we think that this blasphemy law is incorrect in her case, he was, he was gunned and assassinated by the Taliban faction in Pakistan. Now that's persecution. Having grown up in Pakistan and having been the director of team, I've now seen firsthand uh, some of the results of this. I do not know this woman. I do not know this this family. I do know the students that were at Murray Christian School when three al-Qaeda gunmen came in loaded with, with guns and grenades to kill as many missionary students as they could. You've probably heard that story. But uh, God overruled. They did end up killing five of the... Pakistani laborers who were working in maintenance and various functions, but they were not able to get any of the children. It's a long story. I wish I could tell it to you. I've been to that school. I've seen the pockmarks in the walls from the bullets. And I've seen how Lord miraculously rescued these children, even though the emotional damage is another story. I've, I've seen the chapel in the hospital in Taxila, Pakistan, where I happen to have been born, which is now an eye hospital. I've seen the chapel that was where the doors were blown off by a suicide bomber, when all of the Pakistani Christian staff who were there to serve the people of Pakistan were, were gathered for worship. I've talked to Kim Pulliam, a team missionary, who was in the church in Islamabad, I think it was around 2005 or 6 the International Church in Islamabad when a suicide bomber came in with five grenades, pulled the pins, threw the grenades, and blew himself up. Kim was thrown to the floor by one of her... uh, The person sitting next to her was actually from the embassy and knew what to do in a case of this. You you throw yourself to the floor and you point your foot at whoever it... your feet at whoever it is so that if the shrapnel blows up, it doesn't hit internal organs. She was thrown to the floor. And she was not injured. And when she finally opened her eyes after the noise and the explosion had subsided, she, was, she looked across and here about two feet from her head was an unexploded grenade. Now, think about the emotional impact. She was not killed herself, but she has suffered a lifetime now, since then, of just the, the trauma of this, that kind of moment. She turns over and looks up and she sees the remains of the suicide bomber across the ceiling. This is the kind of persecution going on in Pakistan. I've, we're not going to take time to talk about Iran or China, Afghanistan, Sudan, Cameroon, places where active persecution, or Nigeria, where active persecution is going on against Christians. The question is, how do we respond to it? Now, frankly, um, I can share with you a lot of very unproductive responses because I've had them all. One of the responses is guilt. First of all, how come I'm not being persecuted? It's kind of like survivor guilt. It's like, well, is there something wrong with my faith? Nobody's throwing bombs at me. Or guilt that I haven't done anything and I should do something. Now, guilt is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If you go and check in Galatians, it's not there in the list. That's an unproductive response. Another unproductive response is frustration. It's like, oh, you know, I can't keep track of it all anyway. It's going on all over the place. I can't can't think about it all, so I'm just not going to think about any of it. I'm just going to hope that my life stays comfortable. Uh, that, too, is an un- unproductive response. God has called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And our neighbor isn't just the person next door. Another unproductive response is cynicism. Cynicism is, yeah, I've heard these stories before, and pretty much all of them come with a fundraising appeal at the end. And the better the story, the, the, the greater the impact, and the the bigger the, the, bigger the draw. And that's, a very, that's not a very productive response either. Yes, there are causes to which God should lead you to give, but you give to those because the Holy Spirit draws you to give to them and get involved in them. There's nothing wrong with the causes. The cynicism isn't helpful. Um, one other unproductive one is just simply to ignore it all and, and be apathetic. Yeah, you know, I don't care. <laughs> now, like I said... I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here this morning. I have felt and responded to these kinds of stories in, a, in all of those ways at one point or another. And actually being invited to preach on this subject this morning has been very convicting for me. That we need to listen to the Holy Spirit and decide who, because you can't pray for everybody, but there are some that God will bring to your mind that you can pray for. And we need to respond in ways that the scripture says we should respond, which is through prayer. So I went to the person that is the most knowledgeable besides Jesus Christ himself about persecution and that's the Apostle Paul. The the Apostle Paul knew the subject of persecution from both sides. He was a persecutor and he was one of the persecuted. Uh, Acts tells us that he went around looking for as many Christians as he possibly could to throw them into prison, and later, when he was converted, he was on his way to Antioch to do that. and one of those that he, he, he managed to round up was Stephen, who was stoned to death. So we don 't know how many Christians suffered at the hands of Paul, who was then called Saul, but Paul knew intimately what it felt like to go out and grab him and throw him in prison. Then he was converted. The Holy Spirit got a hold of his life. And and now they come after him. And in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, which was written at about the year 55, he gives a list of all the things he suffered. And if you look it up, uh, it's like five times with lashes. And you know what a lash is, right? It's, it's a whip with, with seven or nine cords at, on the end, the leather cords, and each, at the end of each little cord, of leather is a little bit of stone or steel or bone that will rip as much as possible when he's hit, when the the victim is hit. And he says 40 lashes minus one in the text in in 2 Corinthians, which means 39 times. And the two reasons for that is they figured that 40 times would kill you. And the other one was if there was a possible miscount, they didn't wanna go over 40, so they they would say 40 minus one. That happened to him five times. So think about the scar tissue. I mean, how did he walk after this? This is his back and back of his legs just completely ripped up at least five times. Then three times with rods. He was beaten by the Romans. Then he was shipwrecked. He says three times in there, and that may have not included the fourth one that we read about in Acts. And he was stoned once and left for dead. So now this, you know, he can speak with, he can speak with authority on the subject of persecution. Right? You all agree with me? (laughs) So what does he say? And here's where we, I'd like to ask you to turn in your pew Bibles to the book of Ephesians. And I'm sorry, I didn't find the page number. Maybe somebody could find it and call it out. Ephesians 6, 12, it's up there, but I'd like you to find it in your Bibles too if you could. Somebody have the page number? 1781. 1781. And uh, would one of you mind just standing up and reading verse 12? Read that one that's up there. Anybody with a loud, clear voice. Are you allowed to do that here? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All right. So, what's the first thing Paul tells us to remember? He says, remember who the real enemy is. If you're going to pray at all, remember who the enemy is. And the enemy is not what? What does it say? Not flesh and blood. What flesh and blood? That's people, right? The enemy is not the people. The enemy for Bibi, uh, sorry, Assia Bibi, it, are not her neighbors. The enemy for her is not the judge that threw her in jail. The enemy for her are not the Al Qaeda that are swooping around, or the Taliban terrorists who are swooping around trying to kill her and her family, who are now in hiding. They aren't the enemy. I thought they were the enemy. It kind of looked like an enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, Paul says. It's not the Romans that, that threw me in prison here. It's not the Jewish people that accused me and got me where I am. They're not the enemy. Now, how often do we think that they're the enemy? And that's where we try and, we try and, and locate our response. We try and locate our response in this visible world, and we say, well, who is it? Who's to blame? Where, where can we get at them? And then we motivate or try and, and get people together to go after the bad guys. Paul says, remember who the enemy is. The enemy is not the flesh and blood. It's not the people out there. Well, what is then? Well, the rulers and the authorities, and in the New American it says, the world forces of this darkness, and if you're a Star Wars person, you know that kind of, the world, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Now, what are those about? There's the real enemy. Now, he gives us a clue in in Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, and the prince of the power of the air, who is now working among the sons of disobedience. So he names all three again. The flesh. Now, in this case, it's the It's the internal stuff that's going on inside us. It's the sinful nature. And that second one, the world forces of darkness, or what this version says, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces in heavenly realms or heavenly places. The flesh, the world, and the devil. Remember who the enemy is. Now, here's how it works. Uh, Some of you um, may have come from a Catholic background, and you're more familiar with this terminology, but can you remind us of what the seven mortal sins are? Come on. Envy. Sloth. Anger. Anger. Greed. Pride. Gluttony. Lust, Yeah, sloth, they already said. So they're the seven. I always seem to forget one, and I'm worried that the one that I forget is, you know, the one that I'm most guilty of. But (laughs) if you take this list, so um, I have it down here somewhere. Yeah, greed, envy, lust, pride, sloth, anger, and gluttony. Now, I can guarantee you I've traveled to at least 35 countries. That's not everywhere, but I've traveled quite a few places. There is not a single individual on the face of this planet who has not felt those stirrings somewhere deep in their soul. There's not a single person in this room who has not felt greed at some time, another envy, lust, pride, anger. I don't care if you're talking about Pope Francis uh, or Billy Graham. I, you know, name the culture, name the country, name any individual, and these things are there. That's the flesh. That's the fallen nature. That's original sin, if you will. Now the power in a believer is broken because Jesus Christ breaks the power of that sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ and and frees me from having to respond to it the way I was forced to respond to it before, the gospel. So the flesh, the power in the flesh is broken through the power of Jesus Christ in me. I no longer have to respond to lust. I no longer have to respond to greed or pride or envy. But here's what's going on in the powers of this dark world. There are a lot of other people out there who do respond to exactly those things, and every culture of the world begins to develop patterns that take in common, that begin to develop in common with others. So, in our culture, envy and greed work pretty well together in the marketing. It gets elevated into the marketing industry, so that when you turn on the television to watch are the Packers playing this afternoon. Oh, wow, you're free. <laughs> turn, if you turn on the television and watch, uh, you know, whether it's the political ads or anything else, you, you find these things reflected. You find envy reflected or greed or anger. I'm, are you seeing any anger show up in the political ads? You begin to find... What happens is that greed gets elevated into consumerism and materialism. Anger gets elevated into gang warfare and into into warfare in general or to terrorism. Lust gets elevated into pornography industry fueled by the internet. Each one of these things that we find deep inside us gets elevated into a structural component within the culture. And then above that, are the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Who's that? Well, that's the devil and all his demons. Now, it's really important to remember here that the devil is not the opposite of God. He's not like an inverted God. The devil is a created being, and his opposite is the archangel Michael, the angel that continues to do the bidding of God, also a created being. So. The, these are in they're both in the heavenly realms but don't ever get confused <laughs> the devil is not as powerful as God or even close he is a created being God can snuff him out anytime he chooses but he is active and his demons are active and when anybody tries to escape from their own individual personal response to any, one of this, any part of this sinful nature, he makes sure you'll run across something within the world forces of this darkness that trigger it and bring it back to life again. And he's manipulating these forces to keep people in bondage. That's what we're up against. That's the real enemy. That's where we need to focus our prayers. Now, Paul lays the groundwork for this earlier in the book. He, in uh, Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, would somebody be willing to read that one for us? We don't have it up on the slide, but if you'd be willing to just read that. It also talks about the heavenly realms, a very important passage. some brave soul that's willing to stand up and read again? All right, good. Uh, 19 to 23, through 23. Yeah, start with that power is like, that's halfway through the sentence.
0: Things under his
1: feet, everything. There you go. Thank you. What has God done? Because he's referring to his prayer, which if you come to the class afterwards, we're going we're to look at more closely. We don't have time for the prayer here. But he's saying, why can we pray this way? Because Jesus Christ, God has demonstrated his power in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead... And seating him at his right hand in where? The heavenly realms. Where? Beside the throne of the Almighty God, the power center of the universe, and has placed all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that can be named, not only in that age but also the one to come, under whose feet? The feet of Jesus Christ. And he has made him as head over all. He's given him to the, what does it say? The church. Whoa. Which is his body. The fullness of him, God the Father, who fills all in all. So all that stuff I was just telling you about, the, the, the flesh, the world, and the enemy up here, and all this stuff that's arranged against believers like Asya Bibi and all the others who are being persecuted and is arraigned against us, who is over it all? Jesus Christ, absolutely. Sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Almighty God. And if you need a refresher on what that looks like, go to Revelation chapter 4 or Ezekiel 1, or Isaiah 6. And you will see what that power center looks like, at least as well as it can be described. That's where Jesus Christ is seated. Now go to Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, and don't take so long for somebody to volunteer. So, who's sitting right next to Jesus Christ up there in the heavenly places? Not only has he been given to the church right here, the fullness of him who fills, but we have been seated with him beside Christ, who is beside the throne of the Almighty God in the heavenly realms, with all of the world forces of this darkness and the powers of this, uh, the spiritual powers, beneath his feet. That is our calling. That is our birthright. This is what we've been called to, to change the history of the world through the power of God. And in the next, he he actually says this five times, we're only going to look at four, but Ephesians 3, 10 through 12. One more volunteer. This is... He refers again to the heavenly realms. Go ahead, somebody, thank you.
0: His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory."
1: Amazing. The manifold wisdom of God is now being made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. So when the Jews and Gentiles, that's the manifold wisdom here, that the Jews and Gentiles were one body, united by faith through one spirit and reconciled to God, when they gather before the throne of God united in love and unity, the explosive power of God is then able to pass on through the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms through all the authority and power and proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is real because this is the real deal. The manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And that's how we're called to pray. Now here's the most amazing thing about this passage. You'd think that Paul, who has now been thrown into prison again and has been languishing there for years, you'd think that he would call the Ephesians to say, could you guys send a few emissaries over to Rome to kind of advocate on my behalf? You know, if you could get a little demonstration going outside the jail, maybe they'd, maybe they'd think about me. What does he actually ask for prayer for? He says, pray at all times. Now, the second passage, if you wouldn't mind putting it up. Ephesians 6 18 through 20. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be in the alert and keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And now here's what he has to pray for him. Pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. What's his prayer? Yeah, that I'll speak up and and keep saying the very thing that got me thrown into this prison in the first place. Really? Do you realize how (laughs) incredibly counterintuitive this is? That I will speak boldly as I ought to speak right here in the prison, which is why they threw me here. So if we're praying for Asiyah Abibi, the persecuted people, should we pray for their release? Yes. Don't get me wrong. Yes, we should pray for the release. Should we pray for justice to be done? Yes. Should we pray that the the laws against blasphemy would not be interpreted in this egregious fashion? Yes. Should we pray for those neighbors to be reconciled? Yes. All of that is worthwhile to pray for. But if we were to pray what Paul asked for here, what would we pray for? When Asya Bibi, sitting in that jail in Lahore, somebody comes in to see her, the jailer, the guy that brings her the food or whatever it is, will she be able to glow with the presence of Jesus Christ and say, I believe in Jesus Christ who died to save mankind from their sins? The very thing that she got thrown there for Can you imagine the explosive effect upon the nation, upon the patterns and culture in that nation, and upon the, the, the forces of evil in the spiritual realms? You know what they want to do? The real enemy wants to shut her up. Now, here's the amazing thing about the Muslim world. Sometimes we think that the Muslim world is, you know, reactive and they're doing all these negative things. And, and I've heard good Christians say, you know, we should just go nuke them all. Just kind of that reaction is like, these people are always killing people and making up, you know, terrorism. You know, let's just, let's just go bomb them. And we think that they're on the offense against us. Well, I have a secret for you, and it's right here in this passage. They're not on the offense. They're reacting. The enemy of our souls is reacting, and you know why he's reacting? Because for the first time in recorded history, Muslims are turning to Christ in numbers never seen before. And the enemy in the, spirit, in the heavenly places is furious. And he's motivating the world forces of this darkness and the anger and the pride and, and and envy because the Muslim world also looks at the rest of the world and says, Why are they so far ahead? What about us? Why are we always behind? Why are we just getting the, the why are we so poor? And envy and anger and pride are explosive combinations, which are then manipulated by the enemy of our souls to bring about Terrorism as a response. But that's a reaction. And the reason it's a reaction is because so many Muslims are turning to Christ. And the more they react, the more turn. In Iran today, the estimates, the very conservative estimates, and you've probably heard this number, but the very conservative estimates are 300,000 believers in Iran. It may be as many as a million, and they're coming faster and faster every day. In Kabul, Afghanistan, where the pressure is intense, one of our team missionaries knows of at least 2,000 believers who have all become believers since 1979. In Kabul. And, and, and the, the, the fiercer the enemy grows in his response, the greater the, the, greater the turn to Jesus Christ. I just saw on the news, it was either BBC or one of the reports on World News, and they were interviewing a Muslim family in northern Iraq who was going back into their home after the Islamic State had taken over their town and then been kicked out. They're moving back in. They were interviewing the Muslim father and he said, if that's Islam, I'd rather be a Christian. And that's not the evangelical press. And when Christians stand up and say what Asia Bibi said, the heavens tremble, literally. The enemy trembles and he does everything he can to shut her up. And so our prayer, as the prayer for Paul, is let her speak fearlessly and boldly because as she speaks fearlessly and boldly, Jesus Christ is raised up. Jesus Christ is honored. And her life begins to have this massive effect on all of Pakistan and the laws of Pakistan and on the spiritual forces that are controlling so many people in Pakistan. Do we want her released? Absolutely. But until that day, may she speak boldly. Let's bow in prayer and pray for her. Father, as we are assembled here this morning, we are assembled before the throne of Jesus Christ. As part of your body, we worship you in awe and reverence today. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the one underneath whose feet are, are put all of the rulers and authorities and powers and names of this age and all of the other ages. And so, Father, we come before you gathered and collected here together, and we pray that you would fill Asia Bibi this morning in this day, in that prison cell in Lahore, with an overwhelming sense of your presence in her life, that you would fill her with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness to all those who come into contact with her, that you would help her to speak fearlessly and boldly, even in that situation, her words of faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may she radiate the love and power and presence of Jesus to those all around her, and we pray for all of those who are are caught in this web of the flesh, the world and the devil in Pakistan, that they too would be released to be able to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.